Hey, what's up, people? Welcome back to the Sonic Cloth. I hope everyone broke in their new year and did their thing. I am going to be kicking the year off with a fresh episode here, and I'm probably going to be shaking up the format as well. I made a little bit of a mention of this on the last one. So I'm pretty sure I'm going to keep doing track list episodes, but as much as possible, I'm going to try to pepper in some kind of new approaches to covering you know, the, the web of deep music that we uh, you know, often find ourselves caught up in. And I think that this episode might be the one to really uh, showcase uh, this new approach. So deviation from the format, but the core concept, core theme of exploration is still very much in place. All right, uh, let's get into today's rabbit hole. So just a quick preface here before we, we jump in with the guest. A few months ago, I happened upon a band, and as you might assume, uh, I happen upon bands all the time. It's pretty much built into my existence at this point. But this particular band like, really blew my mind open and, and sent me flying down a pretty obsessive listening rabbit hole that dominated, I would say, a good portion of my listening habits like all the way through most of 2022 up until today, certainly in the second half of 2022. And, and this is one of those musical discoveries where you know pretty early on that you're gonna you know, have to make some room in like your, your all-time kind of favorites list. And the band that I'm talking about is Cerberus Shoal. And if you know them, then uh, you should consider yourself already anointed, but there's a decent chance you don't. And don't worry, that's, that's not your fault. I had no frame of reference for them either. I mean, I, I hadn't even like heard them mentioned before, to be perfectly honest, like that, that name did not ring out in my head at all when I first heard it. So, you know, I did what, what anyone would do. I, I immediately scoured the internet to dig up anything I could find about Cerberus Shoal after kind of giving a few of their albums a bunch of listens. But outside of like a couple profiles on music blogs and maybe some scattered like album reviews, the, the well was like so dry. And, and the more I listened to their music, the more I thought to myself like, how could this band that began making, uh, you know, this really deep forward thinking, you know, sometimes alien music in the mid 90s, just like be so slept on? I mean, I fucking found it absolutely bewildering. I mean, the band continued making music up until 2010 as well. So like what happened here exactly? And we'll hear more of these these early albums and talk more in depth about them with today's guest. But I kind of want to bring you back to when I was first discovering Cerberus Shoal last year. So no sooner that I could check like Discogs to see if I could get my hands on any physical media because I knew I needed this stuff. I get an email from their label Temporary Residence announcing that they were going to be launching a reissue series of the first few Cerberus Shoal full lengths. And I think this all happened like in a, in a very short period of time between Discovery and like me getting this communication from Temporary Residence. It's just one of those like magical moments where the, the timing line dried up. So, you know, after I pre-ordered my copies of, you know, these first three Cerberus Shoal records, the big ones anyway, um, I reached out to Temporary Residence to see if anyone from the label would be willing to come on the show to talk about like this, you know, very singular, in my opinion, like very revolutionary band and, and and not just for the podcast or for the audience here um, but to really just to satisfy my own curiosity as well which which all leads me to being linked up to today's guest and I was super fortunate to have Jeremy Devine who is the founder of the amazing temporary residence label on the show today to talk all about Cerberus Shoal aside from getting someone from the group in on an interview I don't know that there is anyone better 
to talk to here. So um, really excited to bring you this uh, conversation with Jeremy Devine. You know, we thought about this and we were going through and sorting out all these reissues and you go back and listen to that stuff. My coworkers, you know, would be like, man, there's still not records that sound like this. You know, like it's like, this is still so out there that like we, we haven't yet hit the point where any of this sounds normal. You know, like the last, the second half of that band's career, you know, the post Mr. Boy Dog part of their career, like you just don't hear music like that. You know, like it's, it's very, like the thing that sort of became like new weird America or freak folk, you know, like even that stuff by comparison feels like very traditional, you know, like it's, I mean, they, they go way out, you know? And so I, I'm really grateful to work with them in the capacity that we are now and to have people discovering it now and caring about it, you know, and it's cool to go back to the, the original stuff too and present that stuff in a way that none of us ever kind of had the resources to, you know, when it, when it first happened, it's like, like when you're a teenager, you have a lot of really or early twenties, you know, you have a lot of really grand ideas about how you want something to be or what you're in. And a lot of that stuff is driven by what you're influenced by, but you don't have the money to do it or the, or the like sort of experience, you know, of it to, to be like, Oh, well, this is how you get there. This is how you achieve that thing. It's like when you're, when you're just starting that stuff and you're just kind of flying blind on it and like just going by things that you're inspired by, you'll hear it and say, that's, I want to make a record like that. And then the finished product is like, wait, why doesn't it sound like that? <laughs> you know? So it's, it's, um, it's cool to, to be able to go back to a lot of that stuff and say like, remember how this is what we wanted to do. And that's not what we wanted to do. Like we can do that now, you know, like let's do that. Let's like finish what we started, you know, 2018 when we did the digital reissues was when I was like, I really want to do vinyl for this record, that record in particular, the first one, because my discovery of that band was from buying their first record out of a box, a, like a kid's distro box at a festival. And it was that record and it was, it was the vinyl of that record. And so for me, I was always like, you know, I know most people maybe don't think this, but that record exists to me as an LP. Like it, you know, it, it's like proper life is as a vinyl record because that's how it was originally made. It was not available on CD. It was not available on digital. It was, you know, in 95 when it came out, it was just an LP that they made a thousand copies of and they sold on tour. And so I always had this sort of like, that's the life it really was meant to always live. And it's a shame that, you know, it's been so unavailable for so long. So it always felt great to me to put that record back on vinyl. The other two that we did were more like, we just never got to do them on LP because we couldn't afford it at the time. And so it's really cool to finally be able to do it. And now, of course, we've done those first three. And the proper Cerberus Shoal heads are like, all right, so you're going to do this one on vinyl. You're going to do this one on vinyl. You're going to do this one on vinyl. I was like, man, there's, there's like over a dozen records. So I don't, 
we'll see how it goes. Like I would be delighted to do them all, but I also don't want to, you know, after being, after not working with the band for so long and like reconnecting with them and having such a great relationship with them now, I would hate to, you know, what little profit these things turn. I would hate to set up their account in a situation where it's just like in this dastardly hole forever, you know, or I'm like, Oh, you guys are back into like the money pit that you were in, you know, 20 years ago. So like, it would, it'd be nice to have this be more of a, a happy ending as far as, you know, it's like, I don't, that stuff gets demoralizing when you're delivering statements over and over again and you just see the, the red, you know, it's just always in the red and it maybe inches a little bit less out, but like, it's hard to see it as, you know, the artist feels like, Oh, this means that somebody has been put out by this thing that we made, you know, like they're in a bad situation because of a thing that we made. And it means that we're never going to recoup, you know, like, so we try to avoid those as much as we can, which is why we're trying to be really cautious about the, this reissue schedule. Uh, Service Shoal is like a great example of, uh, of a band that they, they cared actually a lot. They grew to care a lot about the way their records sounded, but their early records didn't sound great, but they were magical, you know, like they, they, like they sound and feel magical to me. That first record is like by far their lowest fidelity record. It's like their most poorly recorded record. And there's like, it's like every time I listen to that record, I think, man, there's just, there's really truly magical moments on this record. It's there's lightning in a bottle moments on this record, you know? This is one of those things where I was saying that revisiting those records with the band filled in a lot of gaps that I wouldn't know about otherwise and also gave a chance for me and for the band to go back and listen to all those records and scrutinize them, you know, like in a in this lens, like in a, in a now lens and be like, well, obviously we're not going to go back and try and change anything, but... <clears throat> I can't believe we did this at the time, or I can't believe we did that at the time, or, you know, it's weird that we thought that was a great idea and that wasn't a great idea, whatever, you know, like, and we were reviewing test pressings for those three reissues. Caleb from Cerberus Shoal was like, man, I think home might be our defining document, you know? And he was like, I, he's like, when I listen to it now, it feels like the most complete, like, that we ever were, you know? And he was like, it, it just feels like a singular vision. I wouldn't say it's the record I've listened to the most of theirs. I just, I think it's the most complete record they ever made. You know, like when you, like, it's the record that to me has no dips. Like there's no, you know, it's like I can listen to it from start to finish and be like, there's just no down points 
on this at all. It's just a, it's like a, a singular hour idea, you know, that's just like, that's been, it's almost if it's like a singular thing that's just been chopped into five pieces, you know, which I really love. I mean, that record's amazing. The sound of that record is phenomenal. It's the first record that we, that Temporary Residence released from the start. Like they self-released their first record. They released In Farewell to High Tide first on Tree Records. Uh, and then they took it from Tree Records to self-release. And then we reissued In Farewell to High Tide after we put out Home. So Home for us was the first record of ours from the start you know like we i i saw them like basically like we signed them on their tour for info world high tide and so i was like we would love to work with you and i don't know a year went by they were so like uh in insanely prolific in that era but they were like yeah we're already working on a new record you know i was like okay and then they when they delivered home that was the first one that we had done from sort of start to finish. So the distribution was wider. It was the first time we had really done, they had done press, you know, like where we sent it out for review. And, uh, and that was the first one that I remember Ryan Schreiber <clears throat> had written us about it and said he was a huge fan of the band. And whenever we were going to put out a new record, please send it to him, which would be home. And we sent him home. I don't remember if he's the one who wrote that review. It's probably not even on the, the site anymore. But uh, he was really into that band at the time. And so I think for, and, and just it was late 90s and it was like during sort of that real post-rock boom. Yeah. You know, it was like when Mogwai and Godspeed and, and Tarantel and like all of that stuff was really like popping. And so it was right place, right time. And I think a lot of people just, that became their first uh, introduction to Cerber Shoal and it sounded so fully formed because I think a lot of people had missed the, everything that came before it. So I think like when they, when it's like, this is what happens, they're just like, what is this? <laughs> you know, like, like, why is this so good? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, you have to like go in and place it like backwards, you know, in time, like as if it was, it was missing from the whole yeah, story. You don't see the build right? and you don't see the transition. And I think also, Home was, and then Crash My Moon Yacht to a degree, were the end of that era where they, they flirted in the sort of post-rock and ambient rock world. You know, like that was that was the end of it for them and they, they had moved on into more weird folk and more theatrical elements, um, more progressive and like sort of jazz fusion elements. And so I think... For a lot of people, they kind of look at that as like the the 
the sort of big moment for the band, you know, because they became less accessible to that audience afterwards. And that's when you started after that is when you started to see the reviews that were like, I don't know what's going on. Like, I don't like there's a guy just like shouting. <laughs> I'm like, I can't understand what's happening. There's like whistles, like, you know, and like all of those elements started to come into play where people respected how, how abstract it was, but you, you felt from like a sort of a traditional commercial perspective, you could see people starting to tune out, you know, where they were like, I, I admire this, but I don't understand it. And like, I don't, like, I don't want to replay this. And so a lot of, uh, a lot of people I think see home as like nearing the end of that era, you know, the, the sort of like more traditional rock era of that band and kind of like the culmination to Caleb from Server Shoals point, the culmination of that era, you know, it's like the defining document of that era of the band, uh, which I totally agree with. Totally. And I mean, Mr. Boydog, I think has flashes of home and flashes of what might be to come, although perhaps a little more like tamed yeah. for lack of a better term, but like, you know, demonstrating that, that something new was arriving. And this is a band that's like just metamorphosis after metamorphosis, even in oh, it's, a much, it much was smaller endless. way. Yeah. That's what, that's why I'm so interested in talking about this band because that's, that's what intrigues me the most. They were so creatively restless. I've never worked with anybody like them before or since. You know, I've I've worked with a lot, I, and I still work with a lot of prolific artists. But traditionally, part of what serves that proliferation is a familiarity with the with your work. You know, and so like you can make these tiny evolutions from record to record because there's a an overall familiarity with the way that your your process and what you know, you've already basically made these huge uh, chunks that you've broken out of what doesn't work for you and what does work for you. And so it makes it a lot um, easier to sort of fine tune your approach. You know, and we see that with like bands like Mono, you know, they make a seemingly an album every year, you know, and, it, and you can listen to the newest Mono record and the earliest Mono record and you can see the difference. But it's been this very glacial incremental change. Cerberus mm-hmm. Scholl was the only artist I've ever worked with where they were making monumental changes from record to record <laughs> yeah. in a span of like nine months, you know, where it would just be like, I, if I played this record and the record you made a year later, back to back to a total stranger, they would swear to you that they're not the same band, you know? And, I've just never worked with anybody else like that. And I was so inspired by it because it, you know, the, this idea of never allowing, like basically confronting the, that lack of like treating familiarity, like almost like a, like an adversary, you know, where Mm -hmm. you're just like, well, I don't want to be too familiar with it, you know, because then it's, I'm unlikely to make something very exciting to me because it's, I've, I'm going to feel like I've already made it, you know? And that's exhausting. Like it's exhausting as a creator to, to do that constantly. It's exhausting. I think as a listener, um, to try and track it, 
you know, as you go along and try to make those changes because above all, it's insanely risky. Yeah. You know, because you, it's like you, if you do stumble on something that somebody gets really excited about and resonates with a lot of people, it's insanely risky, you know, to just be like, yeah, right. Okay. Well, we did that. We're not doing that again. You know, and it's like now we're doing something completely different and we might also replace half the band, (laughs) you know, like in the course of a year. And so that stuff was always really, I, I was, I so admired it, you know, because it, it felt so sincerely detached from commercial interest, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and like that's even on a small level, that's really hard to do, you know? even when you're not making a living off of it and it's your set, you know, it's not, it's not your job, but it's your hobby. It's still really hard to do. Of course. It's hard. It's hard to do a thing where like if you, especially if you feel any semblance of success, you feel like you've resonated with anybody. It from that moment on, it gets really difficult to do anything that you feel like might be flying in the face of that, you know, or might be turning your back on that. The other thing that related to that, that Serbishol did that drove people crazy was they never played the record that they were touring on. They -hmm. always played the next record, which had not yet been released Mm -hmm. because they were so prolific. So because of the natural process of manufacturing a record, by the time the record would arrive and be in stores, they'd go on tour for home. They were playing crash my moon yacht and be like, what the hell are they playing? Like they're like, none of these songs are on any record that I have, you know? And then people naturally come up after the show and they're like, what's this song on? They're like, it's going to be on our next record. And they're like, okay, great. You know, (laughs) like, you know, I can't wait. And then Crash Moonyot would come out and they're playing Mr. Boy Dog, which is like dramatically different aesthetically, you know, than those two. And so then they'd just be like, okay. Like, I, you know, and they would do that every time I saw them. I never saw them play. They probably did early on when they just didn't have enough material yet to mm-hmm. do it. But like I, you know, at least that I can recall from the home crash, my moon yacht, like elements of structure era, like all of that late nineties, early aughts era. I don't remember them ever playing stuff in real, like going back and it felt like they'd be playing old material, even though it's technically new to everybody else, you know? And so they were just like, yeah, but we're, I mean, we have this whole new record that's way better. Well, it's telltale sign of a restless band, right? They're restless. Like, they were creatively restless. And so um, I liked that at the time. I know like, I know for a fact that it drove people crazy. I would talk to loads of people who were like, I went to see them and they were playing a completely different thing that's like, I, that's not my thing. You yeah, you want to like, hear the stuff that you adore and that you've spent so much time with, like translated in a live setting, and you're, you're, you don't get that. But, in, but the, it's not a rub. I mean, you're getting this other thing. In, I in, loved it. In place of it, as, right? It, because everything felt like experiences to me. You know, I, I felt like, yeah, the thing, what they're doing is they're, they're acknowledging we've made this record, you have that record, and you can have that experience with that record whenever you want in whatever environment that you want. We have created a new experience, which you can't experience any other way except for right here, right now. And so this is the thing that we are 
presenting to you. And I really loved it. And I understand, you know, I had a lot more debates about it back then, but I, I understand people saying, right, but I, you know, this is the thing that really resonated with me. And then I was disappointed to go and like not be able to be attached, to feel attached to anything that they were playing. And I was like, yeah, I, I get it. But like, again, the record that you just, that you just bought, that you loved would not exist had they not been that way. You know, like, like this whole time, like had they not kept moving forward because that forward momentum was everything for them creatively, then the record that you resonated with so much wouldn't have existed in the first place. So it's a moot point, you know? Yeah. It's only by virtue of that, of their creative process and their restlessness. Yeah. They were were even like, they were even here right now. They were even here. (laughs) Like all of this is part of the, that process. I thought about this with animal collective because which, which happened later. But, you know, Animal Collective's early era would be like the, the later era of Cerber Shoal. And they were the only band, the only other band at the time. This is probably 03, Sung Tongues era, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, Animal Collective, or, or maybe the record before that. I saw them play live, and they were on tour for what their, where their new record was. And they didn't play any of it. They played an entirely different thing that had never been released. And they had a bigger draw by that point than Serber Scholl did. But I remember thinking, man, this is Serber Scholl did this same thing. And like, and I'm watching in the crowd um, an expanded version of the same confusion and frustration mm-hmm. from, uh, from an audience. It's just a larger audience being like, what the fuck, man? Like, I, like, what are they even playing? Like, I don't like, what is this? And being like, we will probably hear what they're playing in about a year from now. You know, like would be my guess. And they, they eventually stopped doing that. Yeah. So much, but I love that. Like I, 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 you know, I don't know. I feel like if you see enough live music, you can see the things that you're familiar with any day of the week, you know? And it's, it's a very, very rare fleeting thing to see something that you can't repeat. You know, and like, and I, I love that Cerber Scholl created so many things that, that couldn't be repeated. Yeah. I mean, today, commercially, so many things that are brought to us as big announcements are things that are resurrected from the past and presented in a way. It's like, oh, you get to relive this thing that you probably never thought you'd get to. And exactly. so when you, when you go, I mean, it's going to be great, but you could write the set list yourself, probably. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's unlikely that. You know, in, in the reunion setting, I don't, I mean, that would be exciting. I'd love to see a band reunite and then just play all new material that no one's ever heard and not play any old songs. Well, like Swans kind of did that, you know? Did when, they? When, when they? When they did their, they had their run in the 2010s with, uh, you know, To Be Kind and that run of records where they, they emerged out of nowhere with a pretty much a brand new lineup, a couple of similar people and they were just playing they were playing the album that wasn't out yet that represented the new incarnation of swans the play it live test it out put out the album and then repeat three times so they did this for three records i mean what a run too that whole that whole rerun of swans was amazing i mean it's just absolutely ridiculously good there's a a uh, crossover there because um young god had it, you know, and 
I should talk to the Cerberus Shoal guys about this to confirm. I believe Young God in 2005, 2004, 2005, wanted to sign Cerberus Shoal. And the band ended up breaking up. And then two bands were formed out of Cerberus Shoal. And I believe one of them signed to Young God. Was that um, Big Blood? Big Blood? No. What's the... What's the um, I'm really bad with names. There's a band, Fire, Fire, Fire on Fire. I think that band, yeah, I'm really bad with names. Apologies. Uh, I think that band signed a young god. You're right. I'm looking um, at it right now. 2008 album called The Orchard. So there's a funny uh, incidental crossover to your story, your swan story. The way it was explained to me at the time was that they were, Cerber Scholl had been talking to Michael Girard about, uh, signing a young guy, and then the the band just dissolved, and so that's how they ended up. But I could be wrong about that. It could just be that he was a fan of Cerberus Shoal, and then when they formed a new band, he was like, "Oh yeah, I loved mm. you guys." So wouldn't surprise me. There is there's a track on Home. You probably know which one. And Crash My Moon Yacht, where I'm like, this sounds like that era of of Swans, like the the deep repetitive bass, like just yep. anchoring everything and just having these like kind of layers and and, and atmosphere is on top. There's a track on home. Well, there's, you know, there's that three or myrrh. Yeah. Uh, which is like a three part, like 30 minute track. The second part of that loop has this bass line that comes out of nowhere. And, you know, it's out of this, out of this sort of like cloudy ambience that this, everything just escalates and this bass drops. And the bass to me, like the thing that I love so much about it, it's so tough. Like when you hear it, you're just like, this is so heavy, like yeah. in, in such a great way. And what I love about it is it feels like a piece of their musical history from when they were, you know, from their roots of being so inspired by hardcore and like post-hardcore because it feels like a Hoover riff to me. Like it has that same just sort of, throaty grunt to like the way that it you know and it it's really percussive in this way that like hoover's bass was very famously this way and it's the thing we talked about a lot early on with server show like those guys are big hoover fans and uh i love little trace elements of that stuff coming out in music that doesn't otherwise seem like that kind of music mm-hmm. where it's like um you know, you'd hear this and think like, this is essentially an ambient rock record or like a psychedelic rock record. And this thing comes in and you're like, this is, this is that part of their life, like poking through, <laughs> you know, it goes back to the tirelessness. Like they're, they're both everything and nothing. <laughs> yeah. And that's, the, that's the benefit you yield, you yield from that is like, you can appeal to a broad swath of people who just like particular sounds. Right. I remember Jeff talking to Jeff Cantu from Tarantel when that when Home came out. We were sitting in his kitchen in San Francisco, like nine, you know, December '99, I think. And Tarantel from Bone to Satellite and Home came out the same month. And those records, you know, to me, define that entire era of Temporary Residence and define like they're they're enormous pillars of sort of like what we based a lot of what we do off of and uh 
and we were listening to that record and I remember that part, the the bass part comes in and right before it came in, Jeff was like turned to <clears throat> our friend Diane who was in the kitchen. He was like, you got to listen to this part. And he was like, it just, it just turns into like fucking Hoover or something like out of nowhere. <laughs> and he's like, but nothing, it's just the bass. The bass is, turns into this like insane killer hardcore bass riff that anchors everything else around it, but nothing else around it is a hardcore song. You know, like everything else around it is this like towering, beautiful, Mm -hmm. like melodic, like, you know, like super, uh, like multi-instrumental, like tapestry that's all anchored around this riff, this crazy bass riff. And I had I'd honestly not drawn the conclusion. Like the Hoover thing was such a moment to me from Jeff because I was just like, Oh my God, that's where it's from. That's where it's from. And I was like, it didn't, I was hearing it more like, um, you know, like Pink Floyd echoes era, you know, that era of the sort of running like semi distorted bass. But I was like, you're right. This, this is like, it's like that. If you took just that part and then everything else out of it, you know, and you're like, okay, well the rest of the song is actually something entirely different. (laughs) You know, well, and, and at this point, the band is, you know, sonically moved from like post hardcore, right? From their first. Oh, album, so far, essentially. But like, they're they're not just dropping things; they're they're bringing little tidbits with them, right? Yeah. St- it's still it's still in their DNA, right? It's it's not a discard and and move forward approach. Exactly. Either. No, 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 not at all. I think it's all just like this is who we are, and you know, and it's sort of, I don't know. I'm sure. I think any any player who plays for long enough is like that where you're, where you're just like, Oh yeah, this is just coming from little bits of my history, you know, like my collected history, you know, of what I'm really into. And it's applied in this thing that's currently inspiring me more than anything else. But it nonetheless is rooted in this thing from my past, you know? So that's that era of Cerberus Shoal in general is really great for that. Totally. Um, I, I guess I, I wanted to be careful not to direct questions to you that are better off being answered by like you know the people who made the music themselves. But yeah. um, do do you have just a general gauge into like you know what what influenced Cerberus? I know it's a, a very loaded, massive question, but like not just maybe even musically, but like it seems like there's this, there's an interest in film throughout their their catalog, um, and, and what I understand as well. I mean. You know, I don't want to play the spot, the influence game all day, like, or anything like that. You could do that with most artists, but I don't know. I, I try, I'm trying to drive at like what's so special about them, um, especially in this kind of early first four or five records mm-hmm. kind of era. That would definitely be a question for them, specifically for Caleb and Chris, because I think they could they could tell you in more detail. The thing about working with them is we talked a lot, and we were really connected to each other, and we had a lot of mutual influences for things but at the same time again you know this is a different era that the internet doesn't really yet exist it's not a part of our lives like we didn't email each other back and forth they lived very far away from me they lived very far away from everybody Mm -hmm. um so we didn't hang out you know like we didn't we didn't have a lot of like shared experiences like we would we would talk and bond about certain things but I couldn't begin to tell you any of the depth of what I'm, and I know for a fact, like the 
two times that I visited them, they had, I remember, massive record collections, like far beyond mine at the time, you know? And I remember also looking at it and being like, at least half of that music, I remember looking at it and being like, I don't know what this is. I've never heard of this. 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 And again, like, everything is like where we all come from and what we experience and, and whatnot. And I'm sure I could go back and look at that now and be like, what? I didn't know what this was. Like, I didn't know what this was, you know, like the very probably Taj Mahal and stuff like, like very basic stuff. I'm sure that I would go back and look at now and be like, wow, it's wild that I, you know, that I guess this marks a period before I had been introduced to like Mm -hmm. that record, you know, or that, that sound, whatever. I know they were really into Pink Floyd for for a spell. I don't think, I think by probably before Home, they were already over that. You know, yeah. like they were, they already dug sure. much, much, much deeper into that. Um, they were really into Captain Beefheart. Yeah, <clears throat> um, comes out. That comes out on Mister Boy Dog a lot. Yeah, you know, right, like, off, the, right off the bat. <laughs> yeah, particularly. Were you guys the same age? Yeah, we were. Uh, they might be like a year older than me, but it, yeah, roughly the same age. Um, we just like, we had not very dissimilar, I think, experiences, except because I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky at a time, you know, like I was in high school in the early nineties and that there was like quite a boom in Louisville and for like underground music in Louisville in the early nineties. So it made my experience and a lot of that stuff a little bit inside out. Whereas like, because they were in Portland, Maine, they were looking from outside in. And so they were, and and we talked about that, you know, like the difference of growing up in those two things where, you know, they, there wasn't like the same kind of, uh, like nationally or internationally renowned, um, local music scene, you know, it's like local music in Portland, like local punk and hardcore and like experimental music and whatnot in Portland wasn't like breaking through in, in the world in the same way that like slint and squirrel bait and Rodan and, and all of that stuff like, you know, and, and palace brothers and whatnot was breaking through in, in Louisville. But other than that, like the, the only other similarities for us. And I think what we probably bonded over a lot was I had really lost interest in hardcore and hardcore shows and like that world by probably 95 I would say. And it was about the same with them, you know, like they had made that first record and by the time they were working on their second record, they were already just like, that's just not our, our world. You know, it's not really our life anymore. And they still had, was it, sorry, was any of that a part of the scene, hardcore scene changing in some ways musically? Like, uh, I don't think so. I, I, I mean, Possibly, but I think more just like they were just interested in other things and they were increasingly seen. They were increasingly seen as weird art band in the hardcore world. Mm. Sort of like Iceburn. Mm-hmm. You know, where I don't know if you know Iceburn, but they were also considered a weird art, art, hardcore band in like a hardcore world. But I remember seeing Cerber Scholl at a festival in Columbus. Ohio in 96 maybe. And I remember by, by then people were just like, 
Yeah, I don't know, man. They're just they're they're like weird hippies who make music that I shouldn't I shouldn't like, but I really like it. You know, like they are like they already had. That's like a hardcore kid saying that is what you're saying. It's a hardcore kid saying that. Yeah. Like I, you know, you already see when you talk to kids, they were like, I yeah, I mean, I don't know. They play on a carpet and they're barefoot, and there's like a dog on stage or something. Like there's a guy painting. You know, like it was already you could tell they had already shattered the mold for like for hardcore world. Like they were already too weird for like a lot of hardcore kids, but they made music that those kids still really appreciated, you know? Um, and I think eventually they just stopped. That wasn't their world at all, you know? And, and they, they hung on to it for as long as they did because that was where they, all their roots were, you know? And they had so many good people who were helping them, you know, book shows, house shows, and, and just like festivals and whatnot. And so they were happy to take on those gigs. But I think creatively, they had ventured so far away from uh, that world. You know, and same thing for me. I mean, you know, and, and by the, Timber isn't started in December of 95. And, you know, by then, by 95, like by the time I was thinking about like stuff that I would want to work with and music that I wanted to make, you know, because I was in bands at the time, it was pretty far removed from like hardcore and punk, you know. I mean, it, it, not necessarily an ethos, but definitely creatively. Like you, you know, in aesthetic, it's not the thing that you would look at and say like, oh yeah, they're a punk band, you know. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, even with like a lot of post-rock, like I, so much of that grew out of punk rock anyway. And like, I think... Uh, post-rock is kind of like a prog rock for for punks or something like that you know because it, it really it really stems out of there and there is this sort of uh, persistence to it and that as people were you know not coming out of punk but you know broadening their horizons to other styles of even rock just rock music yeah for sure and, and that type of early early experimental stuff really resonated with like say people who were you know going to hardcore shows still even still going to hardcore shows I definitely understand the transition for people uh, into into that. And also for me, <clears throat> I like really antagonistic music. And I don't take that as to mean aggressive. You know, I like, uh, like Low. Low is a very antagonistic band to me. Uh, because a little less so now because people in general caught up to it. And it became very acceptable. But... I was in a lot of quiet bands. Like I made a lot of quiet music in the nineties and we played shows with low. We toured with low and I really loved, we as a band intentionally tried to play quieter than, than the audience would talk. And the idea was like that you would force them to become aware of themselves and like aware of, of their impact on the show. And this idea of like, you know, people, people paid to like hear themselves talk, you know, and we did this tour with low and they were the only other band by that point that I remember seeing and being like, they're, they're slower and quieter than we are, you know? And, and this is a form of punk rock to me because it's so agitating, you know, like it, like people can't help themselves. Like the, the impatience of it it's so hard for people, you know, to like, to that, that sort of the pregnant pauses, 
you know, like ever just waiting for something to ha- quote unquote happen, you know, I loved that. And it, we recorded our records with Steve Albini the same way that Lowe did at the same time, like same era. And I, I, and that crossover, it's like, this all feels like the same community to me. It's like a bunch of people making, um, sort of antagonistic counterculture art, you know, and it doesn't all, it's not all aggressive. It's like, this is new. This is a new form of like, um, (laughs) of pissing people off, you know, like in a way, because like punk rock had become so accepted, like so commercially viable, uh, by the mid late nineties. And ambient music was the same way for me for, for decades, you know? And I was like, this is great because it's, it's never going to be massive, you know, like it's you're never there's ambient records are not going to sell a million, a million copies of anything. There's never going to be the go-to ambient artist that sells millions of records, you know, and goes like, it's, it's just not, it's, it's forever. It will have an audience and it can grow and grow and grow. And it's probably bigger now than it's been since the seventies. But, but it still has this ceiling to it in the, in the context of, music world like you're never going to see it on the front page of spotify you know there's not going to be like a new william Bazinski record and the front page of spotify is going to be like it's not going to be treated like drake you know or and so i love things that are very challenging like i you know i like things that are hard to enjoy like that take a lot of work to enjoy and um to me cerber shoal were i mean i actually to be honest I, you know, I, I had a very easy time enjoying a lot of their records, but their later records, even for me, were hard to enjoy when I first heard them. Like they became exercises for me and like trying to understand, like trying to piece it together. And that was so exciting to me, you know, because it, it's just like, man, I love, this is like, I love the work involved in this you know, involved in making it and involved in listening to it, involved in like being a, a, a participant in it, you know, like it's impossible to, to just exist in a room, <laughs> you know, like you, you're forever aware of it, you know, and, and forever kind of being like, what's going on? I'm, I'm trying to figure this out. I love that. And I, you know, there's a constant sort of search and discovery, uh, for it, <clears throat> even after you know it. Um, that I really appreciate. And that's that stuff to me, going back to the thing we were talking about, about how there's parts of your DNA that just show up throughout the course of, of your creative life. It's like how those later records feel, still feel that same way to me. It's like, well, they're still, it's antagonistic, you know, in this same way that like, that you were antagonistic when you were making what you, what felt to you like, punk rock in a basement that like quote unquote normal people couldn't appreciate, you know? And it's like all these years later, you're still making this new form of punk rock that normal people can't appreciate.
you know, and like, I, I love the connective threads of that stuff. You know, it, it's what attracts me and like consistently attracts me to music, I think is, um, the challenge of it. I don't know. I mean, it doesn't, it makes us, uh, not a very commercially viable record label. Um, makes me a bad business person, but, uh, but I, I like, I like difficult things. Yeah. And, and it comes out throughout, throughout the label. <laughs> I mean, look, it's not, it's not the most, it's not the most challenging, difficult label out there. I suppose it's all subjective, you know, what are you willing to tango with? Well, that's it. Yeah, exactly. Can you, can you talk maybe a little bit about the, the prescience of the band? Cause th- this is, you know, when I was first getting into server Shoal, which this year, by the way, I'm like new convert. Oh, amazing. And it happened in the most basic 2022 way ever. I was listening to, I don't even remember what on Spotify. And when the album finished, it just started playing random tracks that are filtered through the Spotify algorithm. And I heard the second track off of Home. It just started playing. And I was just Humpelos. like, yeah, and I was working. So I, you know, I didn't go in and change the track or anything. And I just went through all of it. And that's, that's where it all started for me. I was just awesome. mesmerized by what I heard. So yeah, that, that's my context for for the band. And I've heard all I've heard all of their albums. I've spent time with every single one, including EPs and collab releases. And I am still in that after Crash My Moon Yacht, I'm trying to... I, I, I really appreciate it. And I've, I've had a wild ride listening to a lot of that stuff. Of but course. I've only, really only visited those albums maybe once or twice like each. And it's it's just something that I need to kind of revisit i've just become really obsessed with like this first the first five or six years yeah i mean they're they're pretty amazing that's a hell of a run i mean that first five 95 to like i don't know what 2000 that's a hell of a run it is and like you were saying the first album to the second album or the second to the third that's a lot of band like it doesn't even seem like the same band that's maybe for Bands that have evolved quite a bit over the course of their career, that could be their first and last record. What Cerberus Shoal yeah. was producing within a year. Yeah. I, I did, when I read about the group, I did keep hearing like how prescient they were. And you, and you mentioned this earlier. I don't know, yeah. can you expand on like maybe what, what you meant by the group being uh, prescient, maybe forecasting some things that would come later? Um, I don't know if that's what you mean by the term. Yeah. I mean, I just meant they were doing things that they were doing things that became that, that eventually became pretty widely accepted, you know, and, and watching them struggle with their live audiences through that era is it's like heart. It's both like sort of heartbreaking and also really sort of posthumously gratifying, you know, because it's hard to watch because, like, I, I do feel like if they were more appreciated when they were an active band, they, they would have lasted a lot longer than they did. But also, it's very satisfying because you can listen to that music now and none of it feels of an era. Like, a, of an era in the larger con. Maybe the first record. The first record feels of an era to me. Yeah. Like, I can listen to that and be like, yeah, this sounds like, you know, these sounds like a West coast, like screamo post hardcore, like hybrid record, you know, that like a lot of, not even a lot, but a handful of other bands were dipping toes in that water around that time. After that, 
I would say from Fairwell to High Tide on, they were pretty much off to the races as far as doing stuff. I remember High Tide to me, there's a song on that record called Broken Springs Spring Forth from Broken Clocks that's in 5-4 time. And uh, I remember hearing it around the same time that I heard, maybe a little bit after I had bought this uh, Tortoise Gamera 12-inch, which was a 12-inch that Tortoise had put out on um, Duophonic, which was Stereolab's uh, label at the time. The A-side to that Gamera 12-inch is, is the song Gamera, which is this jam, essentially, that I think is, um, I'm not sure if it's cut and pasted, you know, like a pastiche. I know the B-side is, but anyway, it's this long-form, like, sort of jam that in a lot of ways felt to me like that Broken Springs song. And the tortoise song happened before Broken Springs. But I remember thinking, oh, this, I mean, this is how they're already in a different world. You know, like they're, like they have exited hardcore world. Like, because the the closest comparison I can think right now to this is tortoise, which is, you know, completely, whereas the first record you could, you could be like, oh, it's sort of like Hoover and it's sort of like Mohinder and it's sort of like this and sort of like that, you know, and you could come up with a handful of things that you had seen in festivals or in basements that kind of reminded you of it mixed with Slint, which felt like a lot of hardcore bands by 94, 95 were mixing Slint. And uh, High Tide was like the beginning to me of like, oh yeah, you know, I I don't actually, there is no band that's going to be playing Columbus Fest. It's going to sound anything like this, you know? And it felt like they were sort of transcending into some other thing. And then I would say by the time, like, Home to me was probably the last record they made that felt like they were making records that fit within an era. Like, it, it fit with it, like they had contemporaries. They had sort of, like, quote-unquote, like, new age elements, hmm. you know, and and, like, extensive percussive elements that a lot of other bands didn't necessarily have, but yeah, I'd say that's one of the big wild cards for people. Exactly. But by then, you know, home still had enough of a footing that like, if you liked Tarantel or Mogwai, you could, you could find a lot in that to love. And like, it wouldn't seem outrageous to you, you know, it would just seem like, Oh yeah, it's like that, except more textural. You know, like there's, there's more world music elements to it. So, you know, quote unquote, after that, everything after that to me sort of increasingly predicted a thing that would happen after that band was gone, you know, cause they'd start doing like abstract folk, psych folk stuff that was clearly inspired by things like Sun City Girls, you know, and, yeah. um, and, and just like a lot of these co- kind of collectives of musicians, like no, yeah, they were, it was very and, uh, exactly, yeah, and a lot of very obviously inspired and Jackie O motherfucker, you know, mm-hmm. like obviously inspired by that world, but very much a part of it, you know, like it, like like it felt like okay, now they're making music that nobody else is making, you know, and and it's not even necessarily you can't even really you know, it's starting to become peerless, you know, it, it like they're for better or for worse. 
it's starting to become peerless. And I think the thing that really drove me crazy was I would start seeing, you know, in the, the early aughts, 2002, 2004, 5, 6, 7, you'd start seeing sort of more muted versions of abstract folk become really popular. Sure. You know? And it was like, man, <laughs> like, this was like the stuff that they were doing, you know, that Cerberus was doing five years ago, seven years ago, that everybody was like, what the fuck are they doing? You know, it's just like, what, what is happening? Like, why, like, the arrangements don't make any sense. They're just like banging on the stuff, you know, like shouting, yada, yada, yada. And, you know, <laughs> there's an accordion a, now. Yeah, there now there's an accordion. Like, you'd see more and more bands like take up that space, you know, in a real weird, in a real way, like, you know, where I'd start going to Bowery ballroom, that's a 500 cap room, 500, 600 cap room, go to Bowery ballroom and see like bands of that ilk playing for like four or 500 people. But not nearly as adventurous, right? Just, just no, I mean, it's, it's just very a more, clearly, ad- more adventurous version of say like indie folk, right? Yeah, I think it, it really, it very much was like, um, you'd still hear it and think like, okay, this is like a palatable, more palatable version of what Cerberus Shoal were doing like five, six years ago. To me, the the saddest part of all of that wasn't, I, they don't need to be commercially successful. What bothered me was that, that they weren't even acknowledged. You know what I mean? Like, it, like I, don't, I don't care. It's like we can sit and talk about No Nick Blues Band, Jackie O Motherfucker, like we were talking about, you know, Captain Beefheart, all, you know, everything that came before that, all of the icons of... Yeah of like those different eras that inspired Cerber Scholl. What bothered me about it was that they weren't, they didn't exist to anybody. You know, after like 2005, the records weren't available on iTunes. They weren't available in any format that came after that. The CDs you couldn't even really find used on like Amazon marketplace. You could find them on Discogs if you went and looked for them, mm-hmm. but they disappeared at such a pivotal era you know, because it's like the whole don't, I mean, who knows by the time this interview, uh, goes live, maybe Twitter doesn't exist anymore, but <laughs> certainly possible. Although it's you know, been a very entertaining past few days. It's been great. <laughs> my, it's my favorite Twitter era is right now. Um, post Elon Musk purchase of Twitter is the by far the best Twitter has ever been. It's it's not useful anymore. No, but it's by far the best it's ever been. Um, it, it has brought in levity and a, a level of fuckery that like I I do miss about the early internet. Yeah. Yes, it, ha- it feels so early internet because it feels so chaotic. Like it just feels like pure chaos all the time, and you're like I can't even tell what's going on anymore. I don't even know if any of this is real. Like every single account that I'm reading anything from, I'm like, wait, I don't know if this is real. 
Well, and like, what I love about it is the targets are all like corporations or like Elon Musk yeah, himself. Or everything all these, like, elite pieces of shit that like and it's having power, real you know? world consequences, which is blowing my mind. Like like that stuff kills me. But it's like these are multi billion dollar corporations that are that are having like you know midnight like urgent fire calls because they're just like wait 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 like our stock is dropping because a person made a fake account for us and is saying that we're doing all these things that we're not doing and nobody knows that it's not us like that's great i'm i'm all here for the chaos for it i do i i will mourn the loss of twitter as a as a really useful essential social workforce you know for for change you know like it's it twi- like you can't in the history of the world we're never going to be able to like totally appreciate how essential and vital twitter was for like creating radical change for sure. a lot of things you know yeah. and I, and hopefully presumably something else will come and take its place in that sense but anyway back to cerberschall the the point was like not just that they disappeared because a lot of things disappear and then they reappear. I mean, you know, there's light in the attic is, is an entire enterprise based on like mm-hmm. finding things that disappeared, you know, and, and fell into some sort of strange obscurity. And then there's, there's beauty and magic and all these things and they discovered it, you know, and they, they rediscovered it. It's the era that they disappeared in felt so poorly timed, you know, because it's like, they they stopped being a band in 2005. The label, the Northeast Andy, that was working with them ceased to exist. Nobody really was around to pick up the reins and just be like, okay, well, you know, let's just make sure the catalog is still exists and is active. And it's like it happens at exactly the time that iTunes takes off. Ugh. At exactly the time that Twitter takes off. Exactly the time that Facebook takes off. And... I just, I mourn that more than anything else. Cause I'm like, you know, it didn't have to be like this, you know, like I, that's the only thing that I wish. And like, there's forever a part of me that's like, what if I had reached out then, you know, in 2005, 2006, 2007 and been like, Hey guys, like I noticed this stuff's not on iTunes. You know, what's, what's the, the situation with it? Like, would it have been any different? You know, if we'd created an environment that far back, you know, mm-hmm. to be like, don't forget about this stuff. Like this stuff is fairly new and very essential. And like if when things like Animal Collective are breaking, you had all of these records to immediately reference, you know, to be like, oh, Cerber Scholl made records not not crazy far off from that four years ago, five years ago. Like if you if you had that stuff, maybe it'd be different. You know, like maybe because it feels like now we're trying, we're kind of playing a lot of catch up. Yeah. The you the know? story is not like over for them, obviously. Like all this infrastructure around really failed them. Right. And then you're talking about this in our inopportune timing where like infrastructure comes back into the fold and can potentially like, you know, crest a band like yeah. uh, Cerber Shoal. And I'm glad we're doing it. It's, it's always better, you know, better late than never. But there is a there's so there's so a part of me that thinks about like man the, the to go like fifteen years you know with a, like that's longer than the band existed 
mm-hmm. like to to more than double their entire existence of time where they did not exist is really damaging to me and and really just um it's just unfortunate you know like i i just i wish it didn't happen you know cuz it's uh it is all really to me very vital music i mean it's very lively important music and again i we listen to those records to this day like we still will listen to those we have an office playlist that we do every two weeks we update it shows up regularly mm-hmm. like there's Cerber Scholl songs in there regularly because we're like man there's none of this where we're like oh this is such a product of its time that I can't even really appreciate it now because like it just uh, it's like hard it's hard to imagine like getting into this in 2022 like there's none of that like uh-uh. all of it that we listen to I'm like no I absolutely could get into this in 2022 and be like, what the fuck? I cannot believe I missed this. You know? Well, it's like you're saying the, it's really the only the first record from 1995 that sounds of a time. And, and even that Which one, is currently having its own renaissance. Yeah. Um, I was, I was going to ask, you know, you've temporary residence has reissued the first three albums, Cerber Shoal 95 and farewell to high tide with the lighthouse and Athens EP attached. 96 yeah. and then you've got home 99 i know there's um the elements of structure permanence ep in between that but are you finding that this is hitting old he- old server shoal heads and they finally get the physical uh, material in their hand and then you know maybe the digital as well <clears throat> it's hard to tell where there's definitely when we did the first one there were lots of people who were like I've been waiting for this for 20 years. Sure. You know, like I, I've, I've wanted this record so bad for so long. By the time we did the second one is when we started to see comments on some of the threads where, where people were like, I just discovered this band when you guys did the digital reissues in 2018. I'm psyched that you guys are doing vinyl of these. So there's definitely yeah, kind of that both. temperature test that you guys did. Exactly. Um, it's just hard to tell it's it's hard to tell. I mean, yeah. there's a part of there's a like, I don't think we have a way to know unless we literally just asked people, you know, like, hey, is this, <laughs> have you known about this since like the '90s and you've just been waiting for vinyl, or is this a fairly new thing for you? It's hard to imagine that there aren't a handful of people who are just like, I missed this entire thing in its first go round, and you know, it's cool to see now. So. We have that with Tarantel. Bandcamp is extraordinary for that. You know, it's probably the best discovery tool, like music industry-wise, that I've seen in the last yeah. 20 years. Like, I understand as a discovery model, digital service providers like like um, Spotify and, and Apple Music and Tidal, I understand that from a discovery perspective, they're very powerful, you know, but... Bandcamp as sort of a thing that's just rooted in really making like me, you know meaningfully injecting interest in an underground culture. It's much bigger, you know, like it's it's much greater to me um, than Spotify. Certainly, like we have, we have the opportunity to have a random lottery situation where one of our songs gets pulled into some mood playlist on Spotify and it sure. racks up millions of streams that are totally benign, and that and money always helps obviously you know so like say that that makes a ton of money and then you pay the band and they make money that's great it doesn't do anything for their their following or their their legacy 
you know, mm-hmm. it's like they, at the end of the day, they're still back where they were before. They just won a lottery, yeah. you know? So it's Bandcamp in that sense has like re- really injects meaningful change into like underground music. And it's been really big for us for Serba Shoal, like as far as um, like playing and, you know, creating a community for this music uh, that, either existed in a, in a tiny part before, but had no central hub to like sort of base around um, and then pull in bunches of new people, you know, as it goes along. Yeah. And Bandcamp has the ability to provide context through content as well. I mean, that's something spot Spotify is all is la- currently lax. And I would imagine even if they attempted it, it would be clumsy and probably just there. They just don't have, it don't strike me as having, the people, the people who care, the people who, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's, are, and I don't are, think, I think they're actually species. heading in the other direction. I think intentionally they're, um, they're, they're trying to focus more on algorithm-based playlisting now than they are um, human editorial. So they're probably going to head in the other direction anyway. It's, it's stuff like Bandcamp has been, I think, uh, very crucial to things like Cerber Shoal, for us at least, you know to building like a, an audience that can stick around. And again, say these three vinyl reissues work out well, and then we're, we're able to do more vinyl reissues that Bandcamp audience that had built up and supported that are all just there on the ground. The moment that those things happen, sure. you know, yeah. and, and are made and are made aware of those things happening. And that makes it so different. And so like truly like uh, culture building, you know, versus something like Spotify. Yeah, yeah, you've got the captured audience right there, of course. Well, for me, it was it was a blessing because as I'm discovering this band and loving the the early work, at least right off the bat, and just keep just keep coming back to it over and over. It's all I ever want to listen to for like months on end. Yeah. I'm wondering. I start eventually wondering about physical media because I'm like, oh, this is like this is important music. I need, I want to own this music. This needs to be yeah. part, part of the collection. And like, lo and behold, like they, I think the, f- y'all had just announced the first album reissue. And I was like, okay, I was, I'm You're like, I'm, it's happening. I didn't have to wait a, a fucking second for this. Like, yeah, that's it's amazing. Right, it's just, it's just right there. So uh, I know that you said you know, there'd been people in, waiting in the rafters for 20 years for that first record. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm so excited to do them. I, you know, and I hope that we get to do more of them. Honestly, I really love that band so much. So it's a, it's an honor to work with them. Really. It really is. Yeah. And it's fantastic that, that they're on board, that they're stoked about the early stuff coming out. Like I said, I don't, I don't have context for these people as human beings, but when you look at the restlessness of the music, maybe sometimes we can like trick ourselves or fool ourselves into thinking like, you know, I, I the, the group might just be just always looking forward on the horizon and not interested in the past. But like those two things, those two things are not incompatible, right? No, and I and I think things change as you get older, anyway. And and the further, the more time you put between yourself now and the things that you made before, you know, it's your your perspective on things changes, and and you see those things as different as different in the context of your life overall than you maybe did before. That's the case. I think with a lot of, it's like going back to the Lincoln thing, you know, and I I wrote like that. I wrote those guys in 97 and they didn't write back 
They either didn't write back because they didn't receive the message, which is possible, or it was very fresh and that was the least interesting thing to them in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, they were just like, fuck this. Like, I, you know, like, I'm not interested in this, like, band that it broke up for a good reason three years ago. Like, I'm making new music. You know, if, if you're not interested in my new music, I don't want to talk to you. You know, I could see that perspective. Sure. All of that stuff tends to wear away over the years, you know, and you look back on it, you know, and especially I think for Cerber Scholl, they looked at back on it more as like they represented so much of their life's work. You know, it was, it was over a decade of their communal creativity, you know, that just wasn't like had no documentation whatsoever in the world, you know, like it didn't exist as far as like the current way the world works, that stuff just didn't exist anymore. And I think for them, you know, they seemed more than happy to revisit that stuff in the service of putting that work, like giving that work a permanent home, you know? And so I'm really excited. And there was never, you know, it's also, it's so far away and so far, so, so long ago that I think in general, you tend to have, you're less critical of the stuff that you made when you were younger. You know, like it's uh, a lot of the things that maybe nagged you when it was five years ago, but you just don't, you either don't remember or don't care 25 years ago, you know? Mm-hmm. You're like, yeah, well, what do you want to do? We were kids. We made this record, you know? It was, it was an exciting time in our lives. Like, I'm glad we made it. You know, it's easier to think that 25, 30 years later, I think, than it is like when you feel like you're kind of still in it and you're like, no, fuck that stuff. Like, this is what I'm into now, you know? Again, that that in and of itself might have been a thing. It's time and place is everything. And so maybe if we if we had approached them in oh six or oh seven, maybe they would be in a different space mentally, you know, and they could have looked at it and been like, Nope, we don't want nope, we don't want to do that. You know? Who knows? I mean it like it I'm just glad that it worked out the way it did and it worked out when it did, you know. Yeah. So Yeah. It it wouldn't surprise me a band that's had such a graceful evolution of their music can kind of have a graceful like looking back at their at their past stuff and god i mean like how are you in i'll just say it like how are you in this band and and not feeling not slighted but just sort of like you know and 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 i suppose and i'm not putting that on them to feel that way at all you know I'm, i'm i'm coming at this from from my own perspective completely but yeah, I'm I'm ju- I'm just really glad because for me again this this band is a little bit amorphous and I wasn't there for any of it. So, I, I just have my imagination to to rely on, but there was actually a really great video. I don't know if you've seen this, Jeremy. It's um it's of them on Vimeo and they're playing material from Home and I think Crash My Moon Yacht too. Mm-hmm. Um it's called the name of the video is Cerber Shoal Partial Transfer. I'll put it in the description um okay. for this ep- for this episode. And I think when I watched that, and it's like it's about 40 minutes, and it's like, it's really grainy video. It's like, I think shot intentionally with like, kind of zooming in and out of focus on various members. This was the first time I had to get to really see the band like in their element, like playing material that I really loved and appreciated. And um, I think that's when then it, they came into focus a little bit more for me in terms of like who these, who these human beings um, are on some level how they're reacting viscerally in lifetime to the music and stuff like that. So that, that was very helpful for me to just kind of like pair that with, uh, with, with just the album experiences. Yeah. 
I wish there was more documentation in general. I have a, my friend Jeff Garlock had said he found, he'd recorded show they played, I think maybe in his basement or in some friend's basement in the 90s. He was like, hey, I found this um, on VHS. If you want it, I can send it to you. And I have it. I haven't transferred it yet, but I wish there was a lot more documentation of that era. But again, it's it was a different era. It's harder. It was just harder to get that stuff. To, and, and if you had it, it was going to be on VHS. It was going to be in pretty bad quality. And even then, you know, it's it's not like now with, with phones. It's not like everybody was just roaming around shows with VHS cameras. You know, sure. there'd always be like that one kid who had a VHS camera and was just like shooting everything. And you couldn't, you know, I would always see that one person who had it. And I remember, it's funny, I remember in the 90s being like, who's rich enough to have a VHS camera and then bring it into like, bring it into like a punk show, <laughs> yeah. you know? And I was like, like, how dare you? <laughs> like, you, run, you run some risk bringing that thing in, you know? Yeah, I just remember thinking at the time, like, man, those things are so expensive and this guy's just like roaming around the pit with it. Like, that's crazy, you know? So it's it's unfortunate there's not a lot more documentation of that era, really of any era of that band, that I've seen, you know, and, and maybe the band has, has more of it, but I kind of don't think so, but it's cool when it, when it unearths. I mean, I, I think about, I had designed, um, the slint Spiderland box set for touch and go in, uh, 2014. And we spent years, I think from 2009 to 2014, we had spent all this time collecting basically everything that would be uh, for that box, like what the box would look like and how, you know, how it would take shape, what it would include, what it shouldn't include and so on and so forth. And we basically dredged up every photo that anyone in that orbit could ever have of it. It's like, ask anyone around that's going to ever have any documentation of this era. Mm -hmm. Get it, get it. You know, we'll look through and see what's good and what's not good, what's redundant and so on and so forth. And we put all that stuff together into this book and we're like, we did it. We spent years and years and years. There couldn't possibly be anything left that's like not going to be in here. And like two years later, they're like, oh, we have a reel of alternate mixes of two of the songs <laughs> from Spiderland. And I remember being like, wait, what? From people who you you originally hit up for stuff? No, no, no. Like from somebody in the band had found it, I guess. You I know, see. And they're like, we had it. And so they, they made, we made this 12, you know, for touch and go, they made this 12 inch of those songs. It's like, Oh, that's crazy that there was like a very kind of vital, cool thing from that era that you found that didn't get to be included in it. And then just this week I saw on Facebook, Slint had posted, they're like, just unearthed this photo from a live show we played in 1990. And it's an amazing photo. And I was like, you're kidding me. Like, it's shocking to me how this stuff can still, you know, get discussed. It's like, even when you're intentionally, when the word is out, you're like, we are overturning every stone that's ever existed. Yeah. Like, Surrender everything to us, please. Everything, 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 everything. Even then, like years later, people can be like, oh, I found this. And you're like, what? <laughs> like, this is amazing. <laughs> like, why is this not a part of this? And I, I, always hope for the same thing for Cerber Scholl. You know, I always think like, I know that we've, you know, cause when we were going through the reissues, it was like, do you guys have 
unmastered mixes of any of this stuff that we could remaster? Do you have any, you know, any files of anything? And they're like, we don't have anything. Yeah, these are these are all true to to the original recordings, right? Yeah, there's yeah. not there's nothing in the way of, of bonus tracks. Well, what about the and and farewell release? So so and farewell had bonus tracks because when we did the CD reissue of that in '99 or 2000, whatever, whenever that was, mm-hmm. they had two tracks from that that era that were originally used for compilations. They were like, we have these if you want to use them as like a bonus CD. And it was, a, so we made it a double CD. So that's part one, part two of Lighthouse. Part one, part two of Lighthouse in Athens. Yeah. And so when we did the vinyl reissue, I wanted to do, intentionally wanted to include uh, the bonus stuff that was on there because when we had done the digital reissues in 2018, we included all that stuff. That is one of only two remasters we did in all those reissues. The first album and High Tide were actually both remastered in 2018. So when we did the digital reissues, those two remastered. The When we were doing that is when we realized that there was that bonus track from the self-title album, that like 30-minute jam. Yep. Incredible track. Amazing track. And then uh, High Tide had those two extra songs. So we remastered those two. And then starting with Home, I was just like, it just sounds good to me. Like there's nothing, you know, there's things that I could fix on High Tide and that I could fix on self-titled record. And Home is kind of where it began for me where I was like, yeah, there's just nothing to fix. I mean, you guys had started to really figure out your shit by then. And pretty much everything after that sounds phenomenal. You know, like it's there's just no reason to mess with it and i don't think they have a lot of that stuff like the originals for a lot of that stuff. i don't think they have you know so it's just yeah where they're just documents of exactly the way that they were presented originally yeah yeah for sure well we're talking about in farewell to high tide that album that came out in 1996 yeah that seems like a really knowing that year that seems like really prescient for them like i don't know how they're not constantly regarded as one of like the the foremost sort of like post-rock bands at least the tracks on there that would kind of forecast it's it. wild it's wild when you think like that that stuff really hit i mean that would have been before a young team right like by like a year so i'm foggy with that era with dates from that long ago but i yeah it's pretty wild like i i that young team record, was 97 yeah, that record in particular, Farewell to High Tide, I always personally, on their behalf, had a weird chip on my shoulder about. I, you know, I don't think anyone in that band ever really cared. That, or maybe they did, but they, they hit it well. But they, they didn't, they never presented to me like they were bitter that they weren't more popular or that, you know, people didn't catch on or whatnot. I mean, I think they were just so, uh, I may, you know, again, maybe they did, but they were so, so engaged in what they were doing and so determined to like keep pushing forward that I'm not sure they spent too much time uh, worrying about whether people were, um, you know, giving them the props that they deserve. But on their behalf, Farewell to High Tide to me feels like, I mean, what it's like in a different circumstance, it feels like a watershed record to me. 
like the kind of you know it's the kind of thing that if they're if they're if they were on who knows if they were on a different label at the time they'd put that record out originally on tree and then i think they they pulled it and you know or they put out a, a pressing on tree and then subsequently self-released i think like you know it's like you plant all of the circumstances for for like other bands of that era that got popular and give those circumstances to Serbia Shoal, I think on its face as just a record, as a, you know, if you're just going merit based, that record holds up against all of it. You know, I mean, like you're any of that stuff from that area, you're like, there's just no, it has no right being that good. And I think about this like so many of my favorite records are made by kids whose ideas are are like outsized, you know, from from maybe their own technical abilities. And so they hit this like perfect point where it's like they're playing to their absolute peak because like they're playing basically like the most out there that they can that they're able to play, you know, for like what they're trying to pull off. The ambition on that record is so enormous, you know, it's just, and, and it's like, and in the context of it, it's just wild. Like if you, you know, if you just play those two records back, that first record and second record back to back, and you're like, these happen one year apart, you know, and you're just like, I, how, how, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, like the, con- the connective tissue bet- between the first album and for and for a little hide, it's there. I mean, it's it's not completely absent. And there are at least two or three tracks that just sound like it's really almost like pioneering, like the, this maybe most stereotypical post rock sound that like if yeah, you were to just like kind of sure. caricaturize it, but sure. obviously like done immaculately and just beautiful guitar lines. But for me, the highlight of the album is is the track uh, JBO versus Blin. Yeah, the track's amazing. I think that's the one where like the atmosphere that they capture, this is the the peak of Cerber Shoal for me in terms of recorded output up until this point.
it seems like they would evolve that approach in terms of compositions to their next releases where they settle into these like deep grooves kind of led rhythmically and then they're just layering like these atmospheric swells on top the vocals get really a lot more sparse right like at this point too yep that record's really magical to me and i know when you talk to like at least caleb and the band has reservations about certain parts of that record like i don't think he likes the horns (laughs) Mm. I, don't think he, I don't think he likes any of the trumpets. The trumpet, but the trumpet yeah. stuck around. I yeah, but just was uh, used was used quite differently. It was used very differently, and I think it's the way that it was used in that record that I think um, probably irks Caleb a little. But I that record, it, it's hard to overstate how much that record meant to me. Like when it when I first heard it, you know, and it it was just like sort of again, time and place. It was. It was like where my kind of my own tastes and brain were were heading and evolving and like just felt like this thing that was like oh this feels like people who come from sort of the same i same sort of creative ideological place that i do making this other music you know and um it was it was so huge for me i mean it was such a big deal for me for for just that whole era, you know, I really championed that record and I, I carried it with me throughout all of that. You know, it's like any, any time, any chance I would get when that, when that break, you know, the, so I have a really hard time with the term post-rock, but it's an, it's an era th- like it's an age thing for me. I, I mm-hmm. acknowledge that I'm just old and, uh, and like people from a certain era or generation, I think have a harder time with it than, than they do now. And I'm getting better with it. But that breakthrough, the late 90s, you know, probably what, 90, 98, 99 to like 2003, 2004, like that sort of crack, you know, where like Sigaros and, and Godspeed and Explosions in the Sky and, and like Mono, like all of that stuff was Mogwai, like all that stuff was like really breaking and people were just sort of losing their minds. And it felt like there was this, the closest thing to like a collective like commercial excitement about it. You know, it's like it felt, you know, the first time you'd feel that like weird music being sort of in the same conversation as popular music, you know, I carried that record with me through all of that to basically anybody who would, who would listen, Mm -hmm. you know, to be like, man, I, I'm just saying, (laughs) look at the year and listen to this like this record is pretty fucking wild to like listen to this record in 2002 and 2003 and be like this was made seven years ago you know and it's harder i think to appreciate now because so long has has gone on that it's like it's like anything like 20 years doesn't feel like any different than 25 years now you know but at the time when you're listening to something in 96 and being like, man, I didn't hear another thing that sounded like this for like five years, you know, like that's, it's pretty crazy. I mean, and you know, again, by the time all that stuff really popped around, that was of, of zero interest to anyone in Cerber Shoal. Of course. You know, and you'd be like, Hey, check out Exploding the Sky. And they were, they would just be like, okay. I mean, it's not my, it's not where I'm at. <laughs> You know, like well, well, and, get, and give someone in fair world a high tide, and maybe introduce them to that sound, and then just be like, okay, then go check out the next one. I know yeah. that they had the um, 
elements of structure permanence EP, which I love, but like in terms of full lengths, if they were to go straight to home from there, I mean, that's the other like yeah. giant, that's the other giant leap that you can. It's a huge leap. I love yeah. that record. It's like a, it's like an ambient jazz record. I really like that record. That record I would love to do on vinyl. It's a little problematic because of the, of the length yeah. of the tracks. Like we'd have to edit it in a way that would not be, not do a disservice to the music, you know? So yeah, we'll see. That would be my, my dream would definitely be to get that and crash my moon yacht and Mr. Boy dog on vinyl as like a second round of reissues. It'd be really fun. What's the, um, this is my last question about a home anyway, the, the, the group tar pig that kind of joined up with Cerberus Shoal that yeah. happened on the, Elements of structure, permanence EP, right? But yes. then kind of culminated in home. Is that just, was that literally just introducing completely new members to the group and just kind of like, yes. just mutating into one another? Mm-hmm. They were two bands, you know, Cerberus was a trio or maybe a quartet by that point. I can't remember. And Tar Pig were a trio and it was, they were older musicians and I, I would, I'll definitely get the ages wrong, but it it felt like at the time that they were a solid 10 to 15 years older than we were. And they were a local Portland, Maine group, mostly doing like experimental world music. And I mean, I'm, I'm cautious about the term. I don't like the term world music, but it, yeah. you know, as a label, all the terms are, are bad. <laughs> they're all bad. That one hurts to say a little. <laughs> um, but, uh, they were doing, you know, experimental music using, uh, you know, just unbelievable amounts of instruments from at, that at the time just completely created a new worldview for Cerber Scholl for me. You know, I remember when we were doing the artwork for Home and they were like, I think we're going to list all the instruments that we play on the record because there's so many. And like, it's interesting to us that like we had, we had discovered all of these new instruments for this and we feel like it's, it's an important part of the, the vocabulary of the record. And so I remember them sending in all the handwriting and I was reading through it and there were so many spell checks for me with the band, like fact checks for the band. Cause I was like, what is this instrument? Is this the right spelling? How do you even pronounce this? You know, and then getting schooled by one of the members of the band about like what this instrument is and what that instrument is and being so fascinated by it because the tar pig, the the three of them were virtuosos in most of these instruments, you know, and they had played as, as I understand it, they had played some shows together, I guess, Cerberus and tar pig, and then just uh, decided to collaborate for that elements of structure, which was a soundtrack to a friend of theirs film. And, they played live along to the film and that's the, that's the record It's just them mm-hmm. scoring the film live. And then from that, they just decided to make that the band to make that server show was going to be those two bands collaborating. And so then, um, there were three proper studio records made with that lineup, which was home crash my moon yacht and Mr. Boy dog. And I don't know what the, um, I don't know the means for the, the reason for the split or reason for, for changing direction after that, but 
that following lineup after the Tar Pig lineup was the one that kind of became the final Cerber Shoal lineup. The one that was like the six piece with, um, with, I don't know, I think four extra members or three extra members that, that hadn't been in it before. The more like theatrical folk lineup. But that Tar Pig, that's how it, it had come together because of this, I think what it originally, and the band, you know, again, it's kind of weird to talk about this stuff without the band, but the, but the, they would know much better than I ever would. But as I remembered it, it was a, and originally meant to be sort of a one-off collaboration for them to do that soundtrack. And then it just turned into, they really enjoyed it and it turned into a band and it totally changed everything about them. You know, like it changed the way even Cerberusol played their own instruments, like their native instruments that they're familiar with. It changed. It taught them so much about playing those instruments to be in that band, you know, with Tar Pig. And it changed the way Chris thought about singing, you know, the way he thought about vocals and the way he approached vocals. Like, it, you know, they learned. I think those guys, like, are... Um, that was an eternal bond like despite the the band itself like sort of splitting off and and not continuing after mr boydog those guys were connected forever um yeah i mean they're that was an amazing band i mean tar pig were great it was one of those things where like i really enjoyed server show i liked server show a lot i liked tar pig you know those guys the server show guys were like you've got to listen to this it's really good and i really liked it and then collectively they made records that were better than either band had made, you know, separately, you know? And so it was just, that was a, a really like kind of, I think that was a huge uh, shift in the way that Cerber Shull approached like collaboration as well. You know, it's kind of like where they, where it sort of felt like they started to become a collective is a dumb word because it's, people called them a collective, but collective always implied that they didn't have a, a, a group, you know, and they did, they had, they had a set, they had set people members. bounced in and out of the band. Exactly. People did not bounce. invite other people. They're, this was far yeah. more inten- intentional. Yeah. Totally intentional. People, I think just apply collective to like any band that's more than like five members. <laughs> they're like, Oh, it must be a collective. Especially if they're like freaky too. Like yeah, exactly. It's like, Oh, it's like a commune. Yeah, exactly. A cult essentially yeah it's like a cult but um they were you know i from the outside looking in to me it feels like tar pig had probably the the single most impactful influence on server shoal you know like certainly as a fan my i you know it's undeniable like how much how much they meant to that band and like how much of a difference they made you know it's like as much as I love, like High Tide's probably my most listened to Cerber Shoal record. And as much as I love the first one and High Tide, I mean, this goes back to earlier, I still think of Home as their best record, you know? And like, that record doesn't happen without Tar Pig. You know, it's just like, it's like fundamentally built by, by like the things that Tar Pig brought to that group.
that was my first exposure, and that's <laughs> that's the one where I just listened to. I'm like, even the first time I listened, I'm like, I just heard probably one of my favorite albums of all time, like just now, and that does just does not happen that much. Man, I when we were when we were working on the reissues of that record, I hadn't listened to it in probably a decade, twelve wow. years maybe. It'd been a long time, and yeah. I, and and um, we were working on the reissues in 2018, and I went through them listening to them for sound because I was like, all right, let's figure out the ones we would have to remaster and the ones we could just leave as is. And I got to home, and I remember being like, it almost felt like a new record to me, like I. I had spent, I'd probably listened to that record a hundred times in its original run when we were working on it in 99. And it felt like a new record to me. And it felt, I was just like, man, this, this is incredible. <laughs> like, like what a record. And I think part of what felt like a new record to me is I saw it through a different lens 20 years later. You know, like I, I saw it through like everything that we have all heard since you know, and like where music is now and where we think about, like, I remember when that record, when we first did that record, that first song, the harvest. Yeah. It's just that sort of, um, that sort of methodic, like breathing percussion for like six minutes or eight minutes or whatever. And I remember at the time thinking like, man, people are just going to tune out. They're just going to get bored and turn this off. You know, like, like nothing happens. Like it doesn't do anything, you know, for like eight minutes and listening to that record now through like a, you know, our current lens, like culturally, I'm like, man, this is so dope. (laughs) Like, (laughs) like all of this is so good. Like this thing that we sort of didn't have a lot of reference for, you know, when it, when it was happening in in the late nineties, right. There's a lot of reference now built around it where it could be like, oh, I understand the, how how essential this is to like the, the, like how this is the springboard for this record. Like I understand how this is like, the rest of the record doesn't happen without this thing happening first. You know, like I get it, you know? It doesn't feel superfluous. Yeah, and you don't necessarily need to be studied in prog rock or... No, like jazz fusion or anything or ambient music or new age music to like understand where this album is pulling from. I mean, there's, there, there's a couple of parts of the song where I'm like, this almost sounds like Mars Volta or something like not less yeah. fr- frenetic and insane, but sort of the similar sort of like soundscape that they yeah. were, that they would like attempt to pull off, you know, bringing stuff like jazz fusion into like, you know, whatever it is they were doing. And I, I bring them up only because they're, you know, a huge band, with yeah. a really probably a diverse set of influences contained within. So they're potentially like a, a place where people can jump off and learn about other types of music. But yeah, I, I, I cannot, I totally see what you mean about hearing this album in a different context 10 years later and, and just still being floored by it, but just like in an understanding that for other people, this is probably not going to sound like the most experimental shit they've ever heard and just like off-putting and or anything like that. Yeah. It's different to hear now than it was then. And I'm really into it. I'm really actually like, <clears throat> I'm glad that I didn't listen to a lot of it for so long. Like I'm glad I spent so much time away from it because it made me see it all in a very different light going back to it. That's less like, it's less based on nostalgia. You know, and mm-hmm. it's more based on like, like, it's like cultural context. 
you know, and like it's, it's, it's place in everything, which I re- I'm really appreciative of, you know, that was not by design. I didn't, I didn't mean to not listen to it for a long time. It's just life, life moves forward. Of course. And, and kind of the post home Cerberus Shoal is interesting. You know, you got collaborations with Alan Bishop, Sun City Girls, Herman Dune, and stuff like that. You just start to see a, a spirit of, of collaboration even beyond the Tar Pig. I know that the Tar Pig era so. only kind of ended around right before Mr. Boy Dog, right? No, Mr. Boy Dog was the last one. That did feature them? That was okay. with Tar Pig, yeah. Got it. And then And then it was... They cut loose. And I don't know. I mean, I'm saying this only now. Perhaps the collaborative EPs and stuff that they did, I think, at the time were maybe because they had lost, like, tar, you know, they'd split from Tar Pig. And so they were back to being a trio and were collaborating with people to do those series of EPs and whatnot. I could be totally making that up. Like, I could have the timeline wrong, but I know that as far as I remember, there's a, those EPs are basically a bridge between the Tar Pig era and that era. This final. That that was like the, like the Bastion of Itchy Preves era, you know, of, uh, of Cerberus Shoal. Yeah. Which by the way, there's a record. I'd have to look it up again. My brain's not, not what it used to be, but, uh, Bastion of Itchy Preves, that record is very serious. That is a great record. If uh, if you are you had mentioned that you were in the sort of discovery or or like trying to to navigate your way through the second half of that band's career, yes. Um, the first three songs on that record are to me the best example of this thing we were talking about earlier about your your sort of dna from the past mingling with the dna of your of your present you know to make something make like a future music the first three songs on bastinovichi preves to me feel like the the most obvious examples of where they've dragged like their ghosts you know from mm. from like previous eras into this new iteration and it makes there's a song called Bogart the Change that's uh man, I mean it's one of my favorite songs that band ever made. So highly recommend uh if you aren't super familiar with that record yet. Yeah, this one, I do remember this one, and I do, and I think I do remember the earlier half of it. I probably only got two listens out of everything post-2003. 
Sure. Um, and I know the land we all believe in. I don't know why, but maybe, you know, got, I don't know, a bump up in some ways. Maybe it was timing or release or anything, but that seems to be like if you just kind of start researching the band, that record comes up a lot for some reason. I don't know why that record comes up a lot. I wasn't working with them by then, and we weren't really even communicating much by then, I don't think. And I don't, I, I had the same, we were doing the reissues and I was just going back to look for reviews for stuff. It's like probably just the same as you. There'd be all these holes, you know, you'd look up record after record after record. And I'm like, yeah, man, there's basically nothing about this on the internet. And then that record shows up like in a, in a bunch of places and there's reviews for it. And like, you know, and again, favorable pitchfork review, I think favorable pitchfork review. And again, um, when we did reissues, the digital reissues, that was of the later records. That's the record that people were like, are you going to do vinyl of the land we all believe in? Mm. And I'm like, huh, this was, a, this was like some sort of interesting peak happening for you around this time. I just don't, I, I was not around for it. So I don't know what, um, I couldn't speak on it. Right. Yeah. I broke through at the time. I mean, we're not even talking like a, re- a recent breakthrough. So no, no Spotify algorithms or any band camps or anything like that. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Well, we'll have to maybe circle back again sometime to talk about the second half. I'm just woefully like, yeah, woefully ignorant and still, I don't know. Maybe I'm just like so wowed by the early stuff that I'm like, it's created a reluctance for me to, for me to jump in. Um, and I, and I like, I like a lot of like crazy, like East, you know, Eastern European, like inflected stuff, you know, like Hawk and yeah. Hacksaw and stuff like that. Like I, I'm not, I'm certainly sonically not like. Not scared to dip my toes in or anything. Yeah, so. yeah. I don't even think. I think part of the thing also that's interesting about them is you could love that. You know, let's let's say you sort of crudely cut it in half. Uh, their their output. You could definitely love the first half and never really figure out the the way to attach to the second half, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a the whole slew of people. Who and with the you know the interesting thing is this happened when we did the vinyl reissues. We would get these writers who wrote us. There was one in particular who wrote us and was like, "Oh, can you send me vinyl of these three reissues? Because uh, I want to write about them. Like I'm you know I'm really excited by this band and I I didn't dig into it as much as I should have back in the day, but I remember them. And we sent him the digital promos first. You know we're like, well. Just bear in mind, they change a lot over like the course of their career. So if there's like a particular era or something you remember about it, it'd be better to hone in on that before we just like put, you know, put you in this. And so we send him the promos of the first three records, which are the ones we had the vinyl for. And he goes, never mind. I don't like this at all. <laughs> and I was like, okay. <laughs> I was like, that's, that's good to know, you know? And he was like, I don't, I don't know what I was expecting. And he was like, but this is not what I remember of this band. And he's like, I remember them being much different. And then we sent him promos of the later records. And I don't think we ever heard back from him, (laughs) but, but, um, but I was like, oh, this is, yeah, he's probably remembers either seeing them or hearing them, you know, in that second half. Um, and just, and associates it with that era with like no neck and, you know, and all that stuff. And, and, uh, probably just doesn't, doesn't realize that they had started where they started. 
you know? And I love the idea of like, not just, excuse me. Um, like it doesn't have to be the same fans. You know what I mean? No. Like it doesn't have to be people, people who are just like, yeah, I traveled with you the whole way from, from your hardcore roots to like your out folk finale. You know, it's like, it doesn't have to be that. It can absolutely be people who are like, well, don't understand what you guys were doing in the first half, but the stuff you were, I'm all in on the stuff you were doing at the end. You know, like I, I love that. I mean, it, going back to it, Pink Floyd was that way for me for years. Mm-hmm. I mean, as like, as like one of the f- sort of first mainstream out there bands, you know, that I'd listened to as a kid. I mean, I'm, I'm talking like a child, you know, like eight, nine, 10 years old. I remember going back, like, you know, hearing animals, I think is the first one I heard. And then going back and listening. And I remember being like, I don't know what's going on with Adam Hart mother. I don't dislike it, <laughs> but I definitely don't totally grasp it yet. You know, I was, I was like 12, 10 or 11. And then I remember the Sid Barrett here and the Sid Barrett stuff and being like, I hate this. Yeah. I, I hate this. Like, I don't like this at all, you know? And then you, it's like, there are still some people who are like, I grew into all of that stuff and I really grew to love all of it. But there are absolutely people who are like Pink Floyd starts with me at like dark side of the moon, you know, and, and then forward, you know, right. it's like, I'm not like the arena psych rock stuff is like, is like my shit, you know? And then there's people who are like, I like the early Pink Floyd stuff. And then they got into being like an arena psych rock band and I was not interested, you know? So I, I love the idea of people, you know, luckily their catalog is so vast. Like there's, they're Cerber Scholl. There's, there's so many records that like you could easily follow just half of that band's career. And it's the length of most bands careers. You know, oh, yeah. if you're, if you're just like, I'm into this band, but only this seven albums, <laughs> it's like, well, yeah. that's most bands only make less than seven albums. So yes, there's bands with under two, three albums that are, are celebrated. Yeah. That are icons like, to, to, I mean, to, at, to no end and get yeah. put, get put in the best of all time, uh, category. I mean, there's 10 full lengths here. Yeah. Yeah. There's and 10 that's, full lengths. and that's not including any EPs or collab albums or anything or anything of the yeah. sort. This is hard for, I think it's hard for anybody to wrap their head around. That band existed for 11 years, 10 years really, but 11 years, 90, late 94, and did other bands at the same time. <clears throat> and did other bands. Late 94 to 2005. And in that time, they put out 10 full lengths and five EPs. That's ridiculous. You know, like, that's just... it's, And they toured a lot. You know? That's the other thing. Is it wasn't like they were just holed up in a studio, like, all the time. You know? like Who, Who'd they play with? I mean, I... They they toured if they toured as much as they did, I'm sure it, it ran the gamut. But were they just like tre- trekking across like the, by themselves? For yeah, a lot of it. They, I never saw them tour with another band, but like do an actual tour. But I I mean I'm sure they did, and I just don't remember. I literally don't remember. I don't remember a single band they toured with. Like not I don't mean touring with. I don't remember a single band they played with. Yeah. Like I remember I saw them probably ten times live i can't recall a single band they played with um i yeah man i don't know i mean they probably played shows with alan bishop at some point 
you know, especially in that era where they were recording with him. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I don't know who, I know that they always just toured essentially with local bands. Like they, when they were on tour, they were touring solo and they would just play with local acts each night on tour. And I know they love playing shows. Like they love playing live shows. So they were so active, like just so outrageously act, like insanely prolific. I'm so excited that you're talking about this. This is fun. This is like one of my favorite bands ever. So it's like, it's a, it's an absolute delight to get to talk about them. Yeah. I feel like they, they are becoming, they're becoming that for me, but I just need, I need more time with them, but just, God, these are these the first five records. Just absolutely stunning. Like it's just one of those moments where I'm like, when, you know, I, I imagine we're very similar in that. Like <laughs> we just sort of have like an endless well of like, musical discovery a lot of the times it wanes of course life gets in the way but it's still it's not something we can entirely turn off right yeah so when something comes in and it and it has this kind of like immediate impact i mean it's i just gotta i gotta stop and and kind of like sit with it and and soak it all in and kind of make make space around for it so that's that's really what what prompted me to want to feature these guys on the podcast drop drop the regular program this has really nothing to is is like has no relation to much of what i discuss on the show so i love it i really appreciate it this is great this is an absolute pleasure and thanks so much jeremy i mean yeah i think this is probably going to do it for us i think we did some good work here yeah just thank you for getting into the weeds with me today on Cerberus show I, I appreciate your time um all your your insight here is super helpful and interesting and also thank you for playing a part in like bringing this phenomenal music into the world too oh i'm so grateful i'm really seriously i'm i mean thank those guys for uh allowing us to do it you know and um and letting us do it again like to get back into it so many years later you know it's like life changes and and um it could have gone any number of ways for for either of us and so it's cool that we reconnected you know when we did in the way that we did and uh it's funny when we started doing these reissues my friend andy who was in that band a minor forest i don't know if you remember them uh he owned this record store aquarius records in san francisco which oh, was yeah. my, my favorite record store for a long time and he was a huge Cerber Scholl fan and, and Aquarius were big champions of Cerber Scholl. Uh, I imagine what their little placard write up would say about yeah, them, you know, <laughs> they were big Cerber Scholl fans and big fans of like the sort of adventurous journey that Cerber Scholl had taken musically. Mm-hmm. It was like right up their alley, you know? And, uh, when I would send, I'd send these vinyl mock-ups as we were making the vinyl reissues for Cerber Scholl, I'd text them to Andy. And then he was like, you are the world's biggest Cerberus Shoal fan, and I am here for it. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yes, I might be. I don't know. Like, I definitely, it's, it feels, I don't know. Like, I, it means so much to me that I, I, I feel like um, I would be, it would be bad to not do it. You know what I mean? So it would be bad to not, like, if, if we can play any part in having this stuff uh, available to the world then i want to i want to do it yeah yeah absolutely and you're playing a big part in that now so i really appreciate it uh yeah i mean <laughs> it's not i think the reissue campaigns probably are gonna are really what's gonna maybe do the trick hopefully do the trick hopefully just generate 
more interest in what came after because I do I do think this is one of those artists where it, it's the journey the journey's there it's not so much like a document of the past or anything it's like what did these guys do and where did they go and how the fuck did they did they even like do it yeah and why yeah. doesn't anybody know like that's that's the resounding thing you know thing that echoes in my mind well hopefully it's not too late for us to um at least address the last part i mean I do think a big part of why people don't know is just the bad timing that we were mm. talking about earlier of, of when when that stuff became inactive. It just became inactive at sort of a very, a pretty pivotal transitional point in m- the way music is discovered. And they just didn't get to be a part of that for a long time, and, which I think is, is, it's unfortunate, but uh, hopefully we're able to you know, at least rectify some of it, you know, it's better late than never. Of course. Yeah. So I'm, you know, I'd encourage everyone to, to head over to temporary residence to pick up these reissues, um, self-titled album and farewell to high tide and home. Jeremy, is there anything else you want to, you want to drop in about the label, the uh, Cerberus Shoal and anything we've, we've spoken on so far before we get out of here? No, it's really just thanks to everybody. Uh, for caring. Sorry, I'm losing my voice a little bit. Yeah, I kept you on here for a minute. <laughs> no, it's all good. I'm I'm also kind of nursing a, a pretty long-standing cold. Thanks to everybody for caring about this stuff. And, uh, you know, we'll keep doing what we can for as long as we can. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> that's That's all we can ask. Yeah. Great. Well, um, as always, you know, please subscribe, rate, and review. Um, spread the the Sonic Cloth word if you can. And we'll be back here another time to talk about another musical rabbit hole. Uh, thank you again, Jeremy. Really appreciate it. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Mm-hmm.